listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number 11 in the series. Today's episode is titled, Achilles Dishonored. So welcome to episode number 11 of Trojan War, the podcast. This episode is titled, Achilles Dishonored. Now, if you recall where we left things at the end of episode number 10, the episode titled Beachhead, well, the Greeks had arrived on the beach of Troy, expecting a quick attack, a quick siege of the city of Troy. And Agamemnon had promised that the entire thing would be over in a matter of days in one glorious battle, 100,000 Greeks against 75,000 Trojans, winner take all. And things had not worked out quite as Agamemnon had anticipated or planned. The Trojans had refused to come out and fight, and as a consequence, when every tactic devised by the Greeks to get inside the walls of Troy had failed, well, the Greeks had decided that their only strategy to bring Troy to its knees was to engage in a protracted siege warfare against the city. So the Greeks had well, hunkered down for the long haul. And the long haul, as I told you in the previous episode, had turned out to be a very long haul indeed. In fact, as this episode opens, the Greeks have now been sitting camped on the beach of Troy for a full decade. There they are. There's 100,000 men-at-arms set up in large white canvas tents, and they've essentially moved into the beach. They've taken over and Well, they've decided that they're just going to sit there until either Troy starves to death or until Hector, Prince of Troy, brings his army out to fight. Well, for all we know, the siege against Troy could have gone on for not 10 years, but 20 or 30 years. There's no idea how long this thing might have lasted had had it not been for a particular pivotal event, an innocuous-looking event initially, which happened early in the 10th year of the siege. And, well, that event was this. One day, as Agamemnon and the Greek warlords were sitting in their tents, a boat had sailed into the bay at Troy and and dispatched one particular uh, individual who was on that boat. The the individual stepped onto the shore of Troy. Uh, Some Greek guards went down just to make sure that this wasn't some sort of a Trojan spy or something like that. And they very quickly ascertained that the man stepping out of the boat was no spy at all. He was actually a a priest, a holy man, and he, he was dressed in the garb of a priest. He was holding the staff with the ribbons of a priest on it. And he explained that he was the head priest at a temple dedicated to the god Apollo, a few hours sail away from the beach at Troy on a small island. Uh, the soldiers, the Greek soldiers said, what are you here for? He said, I request immediate audience with, with Agamemnon and all of the other Greek warlords. I, I, I have important business with them. Well, you didn't mess around with priests. They were they were holy men. They had some sort of connection with the gods. And so you always treated them with kid gloves. So the, the Greek soldiers brought the priest up to the command tent of Agamemnon. Agamemnon was in the tent. Uh, the priest uh, bowed. He, he identified himself. He said that he needed to speak with the assembled Greek warlords. So Agamemnon called a council of the warlords and Ajax, Menelaus, Odysseus, 
Achilles, all of the warlords arrived in the tent of Agamemnon, and then the priest spoke. His first words were, were very promising. He First of all, he wished the very best blessings on the Greek mission at Troy. He said, may you successfully tear down the city and ransack it and, and steal and take everything inside. And, and then he had actually gone further and he said, and may your return and your homecoming to, to Greece be uneventful and safe and peaceful and happy. So, so that was an auspicious beginning to the meeting. But then the priest got down to the, to the real purpose why he was there. And he explained in very short order that, well, he had come to the Greek camp and particularly come to the tent of Agamemnon because he wished to ransom and retrieve his daughter. Well, when this full story came out, it became very clear that the priest's daughter, a, a, a girl in her early teens by the name of Chryseis, was uh, currently a, a reluctant resident inside the Greek camp, actually a, a reluctant resident inside of the command tent in the bedchambers of Agamemnon, king of kings himself. She was, well, euphemistically, she was Agamemnon's guest, but the fact of the matter was she was a slave girl there for the purposes of providing Agamemnon with uh, whatever form of sexual pleasures he, he desired. And now her father, the priest of the god Apollo, was had arrived at the tent and requested that he would like to ransom the girl back. He had brought a sizable amount of treasure, more than enough to compensate for Agamemnon's loss, and he was hoping he could make the exchange and bring his daughter Chryseis back to the temple of the god Apollo. Well, I should likely give you a little bit of a context here on how a 14 or 15-year-old girl named Chryseis had ended up warming the sheets of a 50-year-old warlord king. And, and here's what you need to know. You'll recall that at any given time during the course of the 10 years of this siege, Agamemnon had determined that he only needed to leave 75,000 of his soldiers on the actual beaches at Troy in, in case Hector came out to fight. And with his other 25,000 soldiers, his numerical superiority, Agamemnon had decided his best policy was to keep those soldiers in fighting shape by sending 25,000 men at a time out in their long boats across the Mediterranean Sea to essentially raid, pillage, loot, and rape their way across the Mediterranean, towns, villages, cities along the coast. And this would be great practice. It would keep the Greek army fighting fresh and strong. But equally, or more importantly, actually, it would allow the Greek forces that landed on these towns, cities, and villages across the Mediterranean to well, raid and loot those villages and bring back all the valuable supplies that an army on the beach, an army of 100,000 men, needed to sustain a 10-year siege. So every few months, a new shipment of supplies from the most recent raiding expedition would come in, and there would be cattle, there would be food, there would be treasure, and of course, there would be the commodity required by every army in the entire history of the planet, it appears. There would be women. Lots and lots and lots of captured women. You do not keep an army of 100,000 men at arms, a foot soldier rabble on a beach away from their wives, their girlfriends, without providing them with some forms of compensation comforts. And so the sad reality is, folks, that during these particular raiding expeditions across the Mediterranean Sea, the Greeks were coming home with treasure, but also with shiploads full of young captive women who had been captured in the raids and had been brought back to serve as comfort girls, uh, forced sex slaves, prostitutes, if you will, to the soldiers on the beach. Now, the typical fate of one of these girls was pretty horrific. She would uh, 
She'd arrive in the beach, and if it turned out that she was physically attractive and young and desirable, well, then she would be turned over to the common Greek foot soldiers to use and abuse as they saw fit until she was dead. And they didn't really worry about how long she lasted, because every few months there was a new shipment of girls coming in. Uh, the older women, the less sexually attractive and desirable women, of course, were employed as slaves, and they looked after domestic matters in the camp. They would do the cooking, the cleaning, the weaving, the, the drudge work, the cleaning of latrines and things like that for the Greek foot soldiers. Soldiers. And the very most desirable, attractive, and, and delicious looking of the young women, if you will, well, those girls were set aside especially as prizes for the commanders-in-chief of Operation Trojan Storm. So whenever a new shipment of girls came in, the very primo girls paraded in front of the warlord kings, and Agamemnon, being commander-in-chief and king of kings, would always select first and bring one of these girls back to his tent as his, his temporary bed warmer, and then the other warlords, by, by order of their rank and their honor inside of the army, would do the same. The only thing that separated the fate of this particular young girl, uh, Chryseis, from, well, the thousands and thousands of girls that had come before her onto the Greek beach was that uh, Chryseis's dad happened to be a priest. He was a very wealthy and powerful priest. And so uh, Chryseis's dad, when he recognized that his girl had been stolen and captured during a raid, had immediately dispatched a boat full of treasure to the Greek camp. And now here he was in the tent of Agamemnon, king of kings, ready to ransom his daughter back. Now, it's likely worth me pausing at this point in the story to allow all of us listening in the 21st century to, well, do the necessary adjustment of our moral compasses to make sense of, of this horrific thing that's happening inside of this Bronze Age story. And of course, by our 21st century standards, what Agamemnon, Achilles, Ajax, Menelaus, a lot of them are doing is they're engaging in what the Geneva Conventions, Article 27, signed in 1949, now defines as war rape. It's a war crime, and that's, that's essentially how the Iliad opens, with the Greeks engaged in what we in the 21st century would call a war crime. Uh, stealing women and forcing them into, into forced sexual prostitution is, is a crime against the Geneva Conventions and has been outlawed by the United Nations. Now, in the 21st century, regrettably, this practice continues in places all over the globe. And of course, in the 21st century, regrettably, the, the men who do this and the warlords responsible still manage to get away with it nine times out of 10. But at least in the 21st century, we recognize that this particular practice is, is a moral abomination, um, not so much the case in the Bronze Age of the Trojan War epic. In the Bronze Age, well, capturing women and forcing them into prostitution was just considered one of the one, one of the glories or one of the side benefits of, for of men going to war and and Homer's Iliad is is rich with passages where Greek warlords brag enthusiastically about the number of women that they hope to capture and rape once they tear the city of Troy down and and, and subject its population to slavery and and if you listen to the women the Trojan women in passages inside of Homer's Iliad they they're very clear-eyed and make no nonsense about what they know their fate will be if Troy falls. They, they, they know that the older women will become uh, domestic slaves with, with drudge work to do, and the younger women will find themselves warming the sheets of various warlord kings. So in the Bronze Age, of course, this was considered normal. The gods had no problem with it at all. In fact, if you think about it, Zeus, king of the gods, if, if ever there was going to be an arbiter of human behavior, well, Zeus inside of the Trojan War epic is, well, very clearly, folks, uh, a serial rapist. Think about 
the heroine or the cause celebre of this particular story, Helen of Troy, and, and I've already told you about her origin story and the poor woman Leda who finds herself pregnant at the gentle offerings of a giant white trumpeter swan. Uh, so the Olympian gods had no problems whatsoever with the concept of war rape, and we just have to accept that. And we should also like to be a little bit careful before we go and get all and go shame on those Olympian gods. And any of you, of course, who are Christians or, or, or Jewish, I'd invite you to peruse your own holy documents, the, uh, uh, the Old Testament scriptures. And there you will find, of course, uh, the good guys in those stories uh, continually celebrating mass episodes of, of genocide, war, rape, murder, and carnage, and killing of children on a scale which, well, makes Zeus and the Olympian gods look like pure amateurs at the sport. So, now that we've adjusted our moral compasses, now that we're back in the Bronze Age and we've accepted that what Achilles and Agamemnon and all of the warlords are doing by uh, systematically capturing and subjecting women to forced prostitution is just fine with everybody concerned, well, we can get back to our story. Well, the, the priest of Apollo who arrived turned to Agamemnon and, and he said, I, I know that my daughter is currently in your tent, and Lord Agamemnon, I would respectfully like to purchase her back from you. I've brought a boatload of treasure, more than, more than sufficient for the value of the girl that you have, you've taken from me, and so let's just arrange a transaction, and, and I will bring my daughter Chryseis home. Well, the Greeks, the minute that Agamemnon heard this offer, well, the rest of the Greek warlords listening to the priest roared their approval. This, uh, this was the common sense thing to do. Well, had Agamemnon recognized that he was that he was sleeping with the daughter of a holy man, a priest, he he likely would have thought wise of it and and found some other woman. You didn't want to mess with the priests, as I said. They had channels to the Olympian gods, so the Greek warlords roared their approval and said, "Yes, accept the sacrifice, Agamemnon. Accept the ransom. It's very very generous. And and besides, we don't we don't need an angry priest on our case right now." And and. For some reason, some strange reason that has never been adequately explained, at that point, Agamemnon, king of kings, somehow was piqued or got his back up. Maybe he didn't like the other warlords making decisions on his behalf and telling him what a good course of action is. So Agamemnon, instead of doing the sensible thing, accepting, accepting the ransom and returning the girl Chryseis, Agamemnon had turned around and absolutely refused to return his property, the prize Chryseis, to her father. He, In fact, he turned around to the old priest and he said, get off my beach right away while well, you can still get off the beach and, or, or I'll make your life absolutely miserable. And as the poor priest was, was departing and escaping in fear, Agamemnon had stopped him and just rubbed salt in the poor old father's wound by saying, and, and just so you know, you never will see your daughter Chryseis again. I have every intention of bringing her with me when I return to Greece. Uh, she's, she's far hotter and, and more sexually desirable than my wife, Clem Timnestra, so I'm just going to move her into the palace with me and, and, and she will be in my bedroom at my beck and call until she's old and tired, old man, so say goodbye to your daughter now. And at that point, the poor old priest, having done his best to ransom his daughter back, uh, left the Greek camp, hopped into his boat, headed back to the temple of the god Apollo, and, well, it's a bit of a no-brainer what he did next. The old man, the priest to Apollo, uh, dropped to his knees. He, he, he made his prayers to Apollo, and he said, Lord Apollo, I've always worshipped you, I've always made the sacrifices, and now hear my request. Uh, the, Greeks have, uh, the Greeks have my daughter. They have not accepted a reasonable compensation and ransom for her. So, 
Lord Apollo, if it's your will, please punish Agamemnon and the Greek army for, for, for this violation and for this transgression. Make the Greeks' lives miserable, please. And the god Apollo complied with the old man's request. Uh, the god Apollo uh, looked down onto the Greek camp and then the god Apollo released a, a volley of plague arrows into that particular Greek camp. And now, the god Apollo you didn't want to mess with because if you did mess with the god Apollo and he decided he didn't like you, well, the god Apollo was a god of sickness and of disease. And so when the god Apollo wanted to punish the affronts of human beings, what he would do is he would he would send plague. So plague rained down on the entire Greek army in that beach. Uh, all 75,000 men in the camp got very, very sick in a hurry. Uh, within a day, all the livestock had caught the illness. And within two days, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Greek men in that beach were dying of plague. And the plague went on and on and on with no signs of abating. In fact, it got worse. Every day, more and more men died. Every night, the funeral pyres to, to, to burn the plague-ridden bodies burned hotter and higher into the night skies. And, and there was no end in sight to it. And Agamemnon refused to relent. Finally, on the 10th day of the plague, Achilles who was in the camp at the time, home from a raiding expedition, had 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 just about enough and he took charge of the situation. He he convened a council of all the warlords, including Agamemnon, and, and when Achilles convened the council of the warlords, he turned around and he he, he rightly suggested that the first thing the Greeks needed to do was discern whether this was a, a naturally occurring plague or whether there was some sort of angry deity behind the plague. Um, all the warlords suspected it was an angry deity, but uh, they turned to the priests and they said, can you tell us for sure? And and the head priest turned around and said, yes, uh, this plague is is no natural plague. This, uh, this plague has been sent by the god Apollo himself. And the god Apollo is very clearly, as you well know, angry at Agamemnon for refusing to return the slave girl and accept the ransom. And the god Apollo has every intention of killing every last man on the Greek beach until Agamemnon, king of kings, relents and returns the girl to her father. Well, at that particular point, Agamemnon turned around and he recognized that he was really trapped at this point to to not return the girl to her father was well was a death sentence for his entire operation trojan storm but but agamemnon well, to save face, turned around and, and first made a very long speech attacking the priest and saying, you're likely wrong about this. You've been wrong about everything so far, priest. How do I know that I can trust you? But, but that was really just to save face. The priest sat there and listened. He knew that he had discerned the, the cause of this plague accurately. And then, and then Agamemnon had gone on and made a very, very long-winded speech about how wonderful the slave girl Chryseis was in every respect and, and how valuable she was and, and how painful it was going to be for Agamemnon to lose this particular slave girl. And, and then finally, Agamemnon really dropped the hammer. He turned around and said, but in spite of all of those things, he was willing to return the slave girl Chryseis to her father, the priest, but only on one condition. And Agamemnon announced that, well, as king of kings and the commander-in-chief of Operation Trojan Storm, then by all means, if every other warlord had a slave girl warming their sheets that particular night, then it was completely inappropriate and wrong for Agamemnon to be the only warlord in the beach who, who went to bed unaccompanied. Uh, Agamemnon turned around and said, honor requires that I have a slave girl in my tent tonight too. Uh, after all, I'm, I, I'm the greater man than the rest of you. I'm the king of this operation. My needs should be looked after at all times. They should be the first priority. Well, well Achilles said, 
rightly turned around and, and, and legitimately made an effort to, to, to calm Agamemnon down and, and to talk a little bit of reason into him. Achilles had pointed out that, well, the hard reality was that, well, the Greek army was fresh out of slave girls at the moment. Uh, Achilles had led the last expedition. He had personally supervised the, uh, the capture of the last batch of women. And when they had got back to the beach, well, uh, the lesser women had been distributed to the common foot soldiers and they were no use to the warlords anymore. And that, uh, well, all the beautiful and desirable and attractive women had already been doled out to all the warlords. There, there, there was no inventory, Achilles said, of, uh, of women that Agamemnon could just go down and pick one up. But but, but cheer up, Agamemnon, Achilles stated uh, very sincerely. He said, yes, I recognize that this is a temporary diminishment of your honor, not having a woman in your tent, but, but we'll make it up to you, Agamemnon. And, and when Troy falls, and, and that'll happen any day now soon, Agamemnon, in, in, in exchange for your temporary loss, what we will do is once we get into the city, Agamemnon, we will capture all the best of the most desirable of the Trojan princesses, and we'll let you choose three or four before the rest of us choose even one. And that way your, your temporary loss will, will be accommodated. Well, it should have been sufficient to assuage Agamemnon's demands and, and to restate that he was indeed the commander-in-chief of Operation Trojan Storm with the highest degree of honor, but, but it didn't. Agamemnon turned around and, and, and announced, no, Achilles, that is simply not good enough. I require a woman in my tent. Now, and as commander-in-chief, I will take a woman. So, Achilles, if you're telling me, Achilles, that there are no available girls of suitable status to me in the inventory right now, then, then Achilles, I here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to take one of the other warlord's girls. And, Achilles, you're the most junior. You're the youngest of the warlords on the beach right now. Uh, you're much less senior in authority and age than than my brother Menelaus or Odysseus or or, or Ajax. So Achilles, I, I think it'll be the slave girl in your tent, which I will help myself to this evening. Achilles, send her to my tent now. Your property is now my property. Well, the moment that Agamemnon said it, he he precipitated either deliberately or inadvertently a crisis inside of that Greek army which was going to have ripple effects through the entire balance ladies and gentlemen of Trojan War the podcast and of the entire Trojan War epic and and here's here's what Agamemnon had done and and this is something that would take us a few moments to understand again because we will have to take off our 21st century values lenses and once again place on a bronze age cultural value lens to understand what Agamemnon had just done. Agamemnon if he took Achilles' slave girl and brought Achilles' slave girl back to Agamemnon's tent well that act of Agamemnon doing that would have dishonored Achilles in a public way which which was beyond any form of dishonor that Achilles could possibly possibly accept and and continue to hold his head high in that particular beach and and here's why when we think about honor now in the 21st century we we imagine an internal concept uh, we think of honor as something that well we own inside of ourselves and nobody can take it away from us. So for example, if you were to take away take away all of my money, strip my bank account, if if you were to take away take away my job, if if you were to write scurrilous and nasty things about me all over the internet, well, you still couldn't really touch on my honor because because I decide on my own honor. And the way I decide on my own honor is I, I stand in the mirror and I honestly praise myself and I decide whether I am honorable or not. And and that's an internal measurement of my self-value and worth. And, and no other individual, whatever they can do, can take that away from me. 
but inside of the Bronze Age, that was not how honor operated at all. Inside of the Bronze Age, honor was externalized, and honor was externalized in the form of material possessions and nothing else. You had honor if you had stuff, material stuff, and if you didn't have material stuff, you did not have honor. And the more stuff you had, the more material goods you had, the greater your honor was. Now, the Greeks of this particular time period didn't have cash. They hadn't developed a currency, but they had a very clear idea of the relative value of stuff. And and smoking hot, sexy young slave girls, well, like the one that Agamemnon had just lost, Chryseis, they were really, really valuable stuff. And, and so Agamemnon had clearly been diminished in his honor when he had had to relinquish his slave girl, Chryseis. And, and this was no symbolic thing. We have to understand that this would be the equivalent of, in the 21st century, if somebody had suddenly taken a hit to their bank account. Agamemnon had tangibly lost something exceedingly, exceedingly valuable to him in monetary terms, but it was even more so valuable to him in terms of of his honor terms. The minute that Chryseis was gone and no longer his, Agamemnon's honor in that beach among all the other fellow warlord Greeks plummeted dramatically. And, and if Agamemnon were to have died the next day in battle, well, Agamemnon, the stories that they would have told about Agamemnon and, and the glorious exploits about Agamemnon that the storytellers would have told down through the centuries would have been diminished stories because Agamemnon would have been a man of diminished honor. So that's how it worked. And of course, Agamemnon then obviously could have restored his honor simply by getting himself a, a smoking hot slave girl of comparable value to Chryseis. And that is why Agamemnon had turned around and said, Achilles, I will take your slave girl in my tent now. And, and of course, that would have solved Agamemnon's problem. His honor would have been restored. But of course, only at the, the expense of diminishing Achilles' honor by the same sum. In other words, in the Bronze Age world, Honor was a material possession thing, and it was a zero-sum game. If one man had more, another man of necessity had less. That's the way it worked. So Agamemnon turning around and saying, Achilles, I will take your slave girl into my tent, had robbed Achilles flagrantly and shamelessly of honor and was proposing to do so in the sight of every other warlord inside of that camp. Well, there was no way, no possible way that that, that Achilles could could stand for this because to do so would have diminished himself. And, and Achilles, as we know, was a, a young man very, very, very concerned about his honor and his status inside of the army already. So uh, so Achilles turned around and he, he, he went berserk. He turned to Agamemnon and, and he said, you're seriously thinking about, uh, about taking my slave girl? And Achilles reviewed a few facts to Agamemnon and the assembled warlords. He turned around and he said, Agamemnon, first of all, just so you know, this is not my war. The only reason I'm sitting on the beach and I've been working on this beach for the last 10 years is at your personal behest, Agamemnon, I do not personally have any kind of a beef or a grudge with the Trojans at all. So, so remember, Agamemnon, I'm, I'm only here to try to help you out. And, and, and number two, Agamemnon, Achilles rightly pointed out. For the last 10 years, I have been the guy that's been doing all the heavy lifting. Achilles has been the scourge of the Mediterranean world, not Agamemnon, the scourge of the Mediterranean world. Agamemnon, you've been sitting here on the beach on your fat ass while I've been working myself up and down the Mediterranean, looting and raiding cities on your behalf for the last 10 years. And finally, Achilles went on to point out, well, you've been sitting on the beach, Agamemnon. Every few months, I come in with another few boatloads full of treasure I deposited on the beach and... You, Agamemnon, take more than your fair share of that treasure. Agamemnon, you accrue more honor unto yourself, and you leave me dishonored in spite of the fact that I'm the guy doing the heavy lifting and fighting. 
So don't you even consider, Agamemnon, taking my slave girl, and, and you back down with that proposal right now. If you don't, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to go back to my tent. I'm going to get on my beach tomorrow morning, and I'm going to go home. I quit. I want nothing to do with your war anymore. Well, Agamemnon at this point, if he had been a more prudent man, or if he had have lived in a different culture, or if he had been in a different particular mood that day and had have had an opportunity to reflect likely would have done the prudent thing and, well, immediately retracted his statement and immediately retracted his threat to take Achilles' slave girl, his his honor, away from him. But Agamemnon, by that stage, was was into full, verbal, flustered, upset, angry mode. And, and, and Achilles, of course, yelling and screaming at Agamemnon and calling him every name in the book didn't make it better. So, so Agamemnon, instead of backing down and recognizing that even more than a Chryseis, between his sheets, what he really needed was Achilles and his army. Agamemnon turned around and he upped the ante on the quarrel. He turned around and in front of all the other warlords, he said, well, go away if you want Achilles. I don't really need you in my army anyway. I think you're a bit of a pain to tell you the truth. But Achilles, if you leave in the morning and you head back to your own kingdom in Greece, well, don't think that you're taking your slave girl with you because I'm sending men from my army to your tent right after this conversation to liberate her. She will be spending the rest of the war in my tent warming my sheets, Achilles you will be going home dishonored. And ladies and gentlemen, that's when Achilles snapped. He reached for his sword, fully intent on pulling that sword out, charging through the assembled warlords and and ramming it into the gut of Agamemnon, king of kings. And the only thing that stopped Achilles from doing this was, well, the Olympian gods. Up on Mount Olympus, they they had heard the rising voices on the tents down on the beach of Troy and going, hey, this part of the story is looking interesting. They had they had tuned in to this horrifying war that they had caused all so many episodes ago. And and as they were watching this this rift and delighted in this fun rift between Agamemnon and, and Achilles, they had suddenly realized that Achilles was on the verge of actually killing Agamemnon. And well, Athena recognizing that she was a fan of the Greeks and, and wanted both Agamemnon and Achilles alive for, for her future planes in the war, had, had recognized that this won't end well. So she had flown down invisibly. And as Achilles was drawing his sword, uh, Athena had grabbed Achilles by his long golden locks, spun him around and said, don't even think of killing the man. Sheath your sword. Uh, swear at him, call him whatever you want. But Achilles, this is no time for killing Agamemnon. And and Achilles, of course, uh, being directly ordered by a goddess had relented. He had sheathed his sword. He had turned around. He had, he, he had burst into a string of invective at Agamemnon. He had called him a dog face. He, he used his favorite dear-hearted coward. And uh, then he turned around and called him a whole bunch of other nasty things. I, I, prince among cowards, things to that effect. And then, and then Achilles threw down his sword and he stormed down the beach back to his tent. Well, some of the other warlords tried to effect some sort of a calm. They recognized that things were going south in a hurry and this was not good for the army. Uh, one of the old, old geezer warlords, a guy named Nestor that I haven't mentioned so far, stepped forward and, and went into a, a long, slow story, deliberately designed to be so long and so boring and so tedious that, uh, well, it would essentially bore the peak out of Agamemnon. And, and the gist of a, a Nestor's story when, when it was finally deciphered was that, well, Agamemnon, you, you, you go down to the 
attentive of Achilles right now and, and relent on your threat to take to take away Achilles' slave girl. This is not good. And and then Nestor said, and what I will do then is I will I, I will talk some sense into the young Achilles and I will get him to defer to you and, and acknowledge that indeed you are the king of kings and and that you have more honor and then everything will be square and, and we can pick up where we started about 25 minutes ago before things went south. But uh, but, but nothing seemed to work. Agamemnon was adamant that he couldn't have cared less about Achilles, and he and he had immediately actually sent out a couple of soldiers down to Achilles' tent to obtain Achilles' slave girl. Uh, well, the practical guy in the mix, Odysseus, recognized that there wasn't an awful lot he could do to, to, to right this seriously tippy ship right now, except, well, the immediate problem, which was to avert the plague and get a stop to all the Greeks dying. So uh, Odysseus had quietly excused himself, gone into the inner tent of Agamemnon, uh, found uh, the slave girl, Chryseis, uh, patched her up, washed her up, uh, did what he could with makeup with the worst of the bruising. Uh, Agamemnon was not a lover of tender charms, and uh, then loaded Chryseis and, and loads of Agamemnon treasure onto a boat and Odysseus had personally sailed off to the island of the priest of Apollo, made his way to the temple, brought Chryseis back to her father, brought masses of, t of treasure to the temple of Apollo, dropped to his knees and well whatever it was that Odysseus said on behalf of the Greeks must have worked because the, the priest forgave Odysseus and the Greeks for the transgression against his daughter and, and much more importantly than that of course Apollo, seeing the size of the treasure deposited at his temple, uh, relented and lifted the plague arrows from the Greeks. And the Greeks, well, had an opportunity to, to, to slowly recover. They were actually going to live. Well, Odysseus did that. And while he was doing that, uh, Achilles stormed down to the far end to the beach to his tent. And uh, he sat there in a sulk. Some 15 minutes later, Agamemnon's emissaries, the poor foot soldiers who had been ordered by Agamemnon to go obtain Achilles' slave girl, well, they, they arrived with figuring that they were dead men at the tent of Achilles. The last thing they wanted to attempt was a forcible removal of Achilles' slave girl against the will of, against the will of, of course, history's most dangerous and glorious killing machine. But when, when the foot soldiers arrived at the tent of Achilles, he, he actually greeted them warmly. He, he, he turned around and explained to the soldiers they had nothing to fear. His quarrel with, was with Agamemnon alone. And as Achilles said, I, I have no complaint with any of the other Greeks in the entire army. It's just between me and Agamemnon. So, well, I know you have your orders. I won't make things more difficult for you. You can take the girl. Her, she's right here. Her name is Briseis, and you can bring her back to Agamemnon. But, but if Agamemnon asks you what kind of a mood I was in, well, you can tell him that I have every intention of stepping down. I'm not going to fight. And, and my fondest hope right now is that Hector and the Trojans actually come out from behind their walls and, and that they launch a full-scale attack on the Greek army and, and that without me fighting in the army, the Trojans managed to completely destroy Agamemnon and every other Greek in this beach. That is my fondest wish, and you can pass that on to Agamemnon. I will be sailing away in the morning. Well, they brought the girl Briseis back to Agamemnon's tent, and maybe I should pause for a moment and and fill you in on Briseis's story. We know a little bit about the girl, not an awful lot about the girl, but here's what we do know. We know that she was captured on one of Achilles's 
smash and grab missions across the Mediterranean sometime in the last decade. We don't know precisely how long Briseis had been inside of Achilles' tent, but but she'd been captured on that particular mission, and and now she was Achilles' slave girl. Now, there were other slave women, obviously, inside of Achilles' tent who were there for the more domestic purposes of cooking and cleaning and emptying latrines and that sort of thing, but uh, Briseis was there to, to, to keep Achilles warm beneath the sheets. That was her particular purpose, and the only way that Briseis is described inside of the inside of the stories is that she was stunningly good-looking and gorgeous, but that really shouldn't surprise us. Inside of the Trojan War epic, well, women seem to be described in, in only one of three particular ways. Uh, some of the women inside of the epic are described as uh, astonishingly beautiful, while other women inside of the Trojan War epic cycle are described as being uh, superb superb weavers, masters of the loom. In other words, they, they have great domestic skills. And, and the only other possible way that you could be described positively inside of the Trojan War epic if you were a woman was that, well, you were faithful to your man to a fault. And, and, and those are the three attributes which Greek storytellers seem to value inside of Greek women. And, and so those are the three patterns that seem to repeat in all the stories. Well, uh, Briseis obviously fell into the former category. Her attribute was that she was she was a smoking hot babe, and, and, and that's why she was in Achilles' tent at the moment. Now, uh, we know a few things about this poor Briseis, who was the smoking hot babe in Achilles' tent. And we actually learned these from Briseis in another passage inside of the story when she's recollecting her life before she was brought back to the tent of Achilles. And, and Briseis recounts how she was living in a city which which came under attack from Achilles when he was scourging the Mediterranean. And, and Briseis accounts how Achilles had first burned her city to the ground and, and then how Achilles had come after her husband. And Briseis's husband, she was a married girl, had, had been killed by Achilles. And then, and then Briseis's three older brothers had, had rushed to Briseis's rescue and Achilles had systematically and in quick order dispatched of all three of them. So just so you know, this girl Briseis, who is currently Achilles's prize of honor inside of his tent and now making her way to Agamemnon's tent, was a girl who had watched her city burn and then witnessed the man who was sleeping with her having been the man who had killed her husband and her three brothers, likely trying to protect her and defend her from just such a fate. Now, the strange thing is, as Briseis is being led away to the tent of Agamemnon, she goes, the Iliad tells us, with a heavy heart to Agamemnon's tent. And, well, storytellers down through the ages have have interpreted this in one of two possible ways. The, uh, maybe the romantics among the storytellers of uh, the way they've interpreted this is that somehow during her, her her time in Achilles's tent, Briseis, in spite of what Achilles had done to her husband and brothers, had somehow managed, in spite of all of this, to fall in love with him anyway, and that Briseis was now actually deeply in love with history's most gorgeous and glorious killing machine. And, and, and that's one particular version of the story, which means that when she's losing Achilles, she's feeling with heavy heart. But Maybe more jaded uh, storytellers, or maybe storytellers who are more familiar with Agamemnon and the, the horrific DNA that ran through the Agamemnon family tree, uh, would have recognized another reason for Briseis's heavy heart, and and that's that she was maybe not grieving the loss of of Achilles, but more frightened about well the tender charms of Agamemnon, king of kings, and the things that he did to women inside of his tent. That might have been why she had a heavy heart. 
slave girls in the ancient Bronze Age world had very few options if they wanted to live and survive. And as a consequence, slave girls in the ancient Bronze Age world, as well slave girls everywhere, learned very quickly how to lie, how to make the best of a bad situation, and how to become splendid actresses because often their life depended on it. So there's no doubt, folks, that Achilles believed that Briseis loved him. How Briseis really felt about Achilles, well, we will never really know. The only thing we can be certain of is that if a girl had to be a slave girl and if a girl had to be forced into prostitution, then a girl was going to last much longer and be much safer in the arms of Achilles than she was in the arms of Agamemnon, king of kings. Well, Achilles, back in his beach, liberated of Briseis and therefore profoundly, profoundly, profoundly dishonored inside of this culture, uh, did what Achilles always did when he was upset. He left his tent and he walked alone down to the Mediterranean and he reached his arms out over the wine-dark sea and he called out for his mother, Thetis, the immortal sea nymph goddess. And as Thetis did every time when Achilles called out to her over the wine-dark sea, Thetis arrived in a moment and was beside her son. And Achilles burst into tears and accounted to his mother the entire horrible, horrible, tragic, epic thing that had just happened to him and, and essentially told the story that I've just told you. Now, it must have been a strange and surreal scene down in the beach. Remember, of course, that Thetis was an immortal sea nymph and Thetis was usually depicted in all of the stories as being an immortal sea nymph about 18 or 20 years old and would be that age forever. And, and now Achilles, of course, is likely in his late 20s. And so there was mother sitting on the edge of the beach and, and, and comforting her poor son, Achilles. And, and, and Thetis, of course, was distraught and beside herself. Uh, since the day that well, she had learned the prophecy about Achilles, that he, he had these two fates. He was either going to lead a, a long, quiet, boring, ignominious life and then die of old age and be forgotten from history, or he was going to lead a valiant life and be known by people everywhere, and they were going to sing his songs through the ages, and then he was going to die violently sometime in his youth. Well, Thetis had worried and afraid that her son would accept the glorious short life. Thetis had done everything she could to, to thwart that, but now here was her son, Achilles, having spent 10 years winning glory for himself across the Mediterranean and camped out on the beach and in an epic siege. And it looked very clear to Thetis that Achilles had made his decision, that Achilles wanted the short, glorious, heroic life filled with honor. And well, Thetis, though she hated that, decided that if, that if her boy had to die after a short, glorious life, she wanted her boy to die with more accumulated honor and glory than any other man in the history of any other epic story in the history of the entire planet. After all, Thetis knew that this was all that she could give to her poor mortal son. So Thetis had turned around and, and asked of Achilles, well, what can I do? How can mom make this situation better for you? And Achilles, turning around in a rage, had explained to Thetis exactly what he needed her to do. And what Achilles proposed was horrifying. Achilles said, I need to teach Agamemnon a lesson. And the only way Agamemnon will learn a lesson is if all of Greece learns a lesson with Agamemnon. So here's what I want you to do, mother. I want you, I want you when we finish talking, to, to fly up to Mount Olympus and speak to Father Zeus, king of the gods himself. And I, I want you to make this request to Father Zeus. What I want is I want Father Zeus to, to engineer things so that Hector and the Trojans decide that now is an opportune time to open the gates of their city and bring all 75 5,000 soldiers out and engage in full, full, no holes barred war for the first time in the last 10 years. And, and mother, what I want the Trojans to do is to attack the Greeks. And, and, and mother, once the Trojans attack the Greeks, uh, 
attack the Greeks, mother. I, I want Zeus to imbue Hector incredible fighting ability. And, and mother, I want the Trojans to absolutely decimate the Greek army. Mother, I want Greek soldiers to die in the tens of thousands on the beach. And mother, while they're dying in the tens of thousands on the beach, I am going to sit in my tent and mother, I'm going to watch and I'm going to wait. And, and, and mother, when the Trojans finally, finally make it and begin to burn the ships, our only possible way home, then mother, I will wait for Agamemnon to recognize that his dishonoring me was a serious mistake. And then mother, if Agamemnon comes to my tent and if Agamemnon apologizes to me and if Agamemnon drops to his knees and respects that I am the greatest man on this beach and not him. And if Agamemnon brings treasure, so much treasure that it compensates for my loss in honor, well then mother, I might step out and assist the Greeks, but otherwise they can all die as far as I am concerned. That's what I want you to do, mother. Can you do that for me? Can you ask Father Zeus to make this happen? And ladies and gentlemen, it's hard not at this point to think that though Agamemnon commenced this quarrel and clearly was in the wrong in violating Achilles' honor, Achilles who only 15 minutes earlier had turned around to a couple of foot soldiers and said, my, my, my grief is, is not with you. It's exclusively with Agamemnon. You have nothing to fear. Well, Achilles was now wishing onto his fellow countrymen, onto the entire Greek army, deaths in the tens of thousands until Agamemnon had assuaged the diminishment of Achilles' personal honor. And that's what Achilles thought he had to do. He didn't see any other option. He, he, he had been barred by the goddess Athena from killing Agamemnon. So this was a course of action which he chose. Well, Thetis listened to her son and Thetis, of course, wanting only the best for her son and wanting only the greatest glory and the greatest honor for Achilles, offered no contrary suggestions or advice on how to deal with this. She turned around and said, that sounds like a good plan, boy. And Thetis departed Achilles, flew up to Mount Olympus, threw herself at the knees of Zeus and made the fateful request, which was, of course, going to change the outcome of the war between the Greeks and the Trojans. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we will leave this particular episode, this episode I titled Achilles Dishonored. Now, there's a couple of options for you at this stage, the standard post-story commentary options. If, if you want to find out what happens in episode 12, if you're going, well, okay, is Zeus going to honor this request? What's going to happen next? Then in a moment, I'll give you a, a gracious opportunity to, to quietly say your goodbyes and leave the podcast and run over to my website, trojanwarpodcast.com, where the next episode, episode 12, will be available for your listening pleasure any day soon. On the other hand, some of you might want to stick around, and here's what I'm going to do in the post-story commentary. I'm going to tell you about Homer's Iliad, this masterpiece of world literature, because some of you will recognize this if you're familiar with the story, but many of you quite legitimately will not. But when I started today's episode, episode number 11, I formally entered Homer's Iliad for the very, very first time. And everything I've told you so far has not been part of Homer's Iliad. The first 10 episodes have been, well, if you will, backstory. And now we're into the official Western literary masterpiece, the Iliad itself. So if you want to find out how that all works and who Homer was, if Homer even existed, and, and how we happen to have a copy of this particular masterpiece today, then you can stick around because that's what I'm going to be doing. So for some of you, I'll see you in about 25 seconds. And for the rest, have a wonderful day. And don't forget to head over to the website and keep your eyes open for episode number 12.
So welcome to the Post Story Commentary. Now, I told you I was going to talk about Homer in the Iliad and what we know about Homer, what we know about the Iliad. So uh, let's get into it right now. I'm going to start by telling you a little bit of story about what happens to me. My, my day job is telling this story. I have a five or so hour version of this story, which, which I tell out loud, uh, the same way I'm doing with the podcast, only when I'm telling it out loud, I'm, I'm, I'm on a stage with a wireless headset mic, so I'm allowed to run around at will as I'm telling it. And my audience, when I tell the story as my day job, is, is huge auditoriums full of high school students, uh, three, four hundred high school students, most of them between about 14 and 17 years old. And for all of those students, this is their their first exposure to the Trojan War epic or to Homer's Iliad. And, and it's a heck of a lot of fun telling them the story for the very first time. But before every storytelling performance, which I do, usually somebody gets up and introduces me and they'll turn around to the assembled audience and say, our, please welcome our storyteller. His name is Jeff Wright. And today he is going to be telling you a famous story. Today, Jeff will be telling you the Iliad. Now, for the first couple of years when I tell the story out loud at this particular point, I, I, I would balk and wince a little bit. And uh, the moment that my mic went live, I would turn around and spend five minutes trying to explain, well, I, I'm not actually telling you the Iliad. I'm telling you the Trojan War epic, which includes the Iliad, but the Trojan War epic has episodes which bookend both the front and the back of the epic. And I'd spent a lot of time trying to explain that to, uh, to befuddled students who really couldn't have cared less. All they wanted was, uh, well, would you get on with the story and we can find out whether we're interested or not. Fill us in on the factual details later or let our English teachers do that. And, and maybe that's the approach that I should be taking with you. But you've hung in now, folks, for, for 10 hours of podcast. And if you're still with me, I, I think you deserve a slightly more detailed explanation of, of who Homer was and, and what this Iliad is. So, so here goes. Well, if you were to actually go to Google and plug in Images Homer, you would actually find a, a bust, a, a stone statue of a blind-looking guy, and underneath it would say Homer. And and if you were to actually go to Amazon and, and decide, well, I'm going to buy myself a copy of the Iliad, you, you would plug in the Iliad, or you could plug it in by last name. And if you went by last name under author, you would type in Homer, and, well, the Iliad would show up. So, so most of us have grown up believing that there was a guy named Homer, and he wrote a book called The Iliad. And, well, that's not really even remotely what happened. Homer was not, we all agree now, and all Homeric scholars agree now, there was no particular author named Homer who, who sat down one day in about 700 BCE and, and suddenly had this really cool idea for a story and thought, I know what I'll do. I, I, I've got this original story. Nobody's ever thought of this before, but I'm, I'm going to sit down and I'm, I'm going to write this story down and it'll be awesome and hopefully people will love it. So, so the Iliad was not written by a creative artistic genius who thought it out of out of nothing. Uh, the way, for example, that, well, Shakespeare sat down on a sunny Tuesday afternoon and thought, you know, I got this really good idea for a story. It's about a prince. He lives in Denmark uh, and, and wrote a story called Hamlet. And Or like Tolstoy might have sat down and said, you know, I have a really kick-ass idea for a story. It's an original idea. No one's ever done it before. It's going to be about war and peace. I think that's what I'll call it, war and peace. Or, 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 or I don't know, in our own century, a guy J.R. Tolkien sitting down saying, you know, I've often, I spent a lot of time thinking about orcs and hobbits and, and rings of power. Maybe I could turn this into a story. Well, folks, that's how an awful lot of stories are written by some creative and literary genius who, who, who creates a universe out of nothing. But that is certainly not the case with Homer's Iliad. Uh, what we do know about Homer's Iliad is that uh, before it ever got written down, well, for the preceding 500 years, 
the story existed only as a series of orally transmitted stories by, by oral storytellers who would repeat the stories all over the Bronze Age Greek world. And, and of course, the story, if you go back far enough, involved a war between Greece and Troy, which happened sometime about on or about 1,250 BCE or so. And, and, and for the 500 to 700 years after that particular war took place, well, the only way that this story was transmitted was through word of mouth, storytellers repeating stories about the war. And I've already talked to you in an earlier podcast about how this worked a little bit like the telephone game at camp. And one storyteller added an episode and then another storyteller a, a decade or so later took the episode and added their own spin on it. So, so for centuries and centuries and centuries after the war itself, we had all of these oral stories about this Trojan War, and, and, and they were all floating around out there in the oral tradition. Now, then sometime around 700 or so, well, the stories from the oral tradition, which had been told by oral storytellers, somehow got transcribed onto text. And the original text was likely papyrus, and, and, and it got, if you will, written down. And we have good evidence about this. Uh, a, a great scholar, Homeric scholar, a guy named Milman Perry, writing and doing his research in the 1930s, has, has demonstrated to the satisfaction of, well, 99.9% .9 of Homeric scholars that I've read that uh, the Trojan War epic and the, and the story of the Iliad actually began as an oral tradition story before it got written down. So our real only question right now is then, once the thing got written down, who wrote it down and how it got, how did it get written down? And, and there were two basic camps of thought on this, and they've been arguing about it for the last two centuries. Um, there, there's a group of Homeric scholars who, who call themselves the Unitarians, and, and the Unitarians argue that, well, here's what happened. They believe that sometime on or about 700 BCE, some gifted and creative individual who was a real genius and knew all of these oral tradition stories, managed to take the very best of the oral tradition stories and assemble them together into a, a, a composition, one work called the Iliad. And, and they did such a superb job of editing the oral tradition stories and of compiling them, of polishing them all out, that, that what they ended up actually creating was an, a literary masterpiece. No, they didn't create any of the stories, but they were the editorial control and the brilliant editorial author who, who put it all together into this masterpiece that, well, I now have a copy of it sitting a, a meter from me as I tell you this particular story. Now, these people, these Unitarians, their evidence of this is that They'll pull out the copy of the Iliad sitting beside me and they'll say, well, uh, well, take a look at this book. And there's all kinds of examples which demonstrate that one literary genius compiled all of these oral tradition stories and, and made a masterpiece out of them. So they'll, they'll point to passages in book three and say, see how this links to something clever that happens in book five. And then they'll turn around to something in book 14 and say, uh, take a look at what the character does here and how the character cunningly makes reference to something that happened in book seven and, and see how the, the metaphors fit together and see how the plot fits together. And obviously this is a work of... Uh, of a genius who managed to take all these oral tradition stories, take the best of them, and, and create this masterpiece of Western literature called the Iliad. And that's the argument for the Unitarians. And for centuries, that was the only argument anybody ever had. But, uh, but then along about 100 years ago came another group of scholars, and they called themselves the Separatists. And what the Separatists did is they grabbed my copy of the Iliad sitting right here beside me, and they turned around and and when they looked at the Iliad, they saw something completely different. They said, no, 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 no. If you, if you look at this, this story that we have, this, this book called the Iliad by a guy called Homer, and, and you actually read it critically instead of with 
adulation and respect, well, what you'll discover is that there's moments in the book of, in, of incredible, intense, wonderful, glorious writing and poetry, but there's equal moments in the book which are make no sense at all and obviously are written by a hack writer, and, and the whole thing sort of looks like it's been cobbled together by a rather sloppy or lazy editorial team that was working to try to get it done before their coffee break. There's there's inconsistencies. There's parts in book four that don't make any sense. They should have been in book one. And there's there's passages in, in book 21 which, which contradict something a character said in book 18. And well, the separatists turn around and it, they use the Iliad to point out that Obviously, the oral tradition stories were cobbled together in a rather sloppy and slapdash fashion, and regrettably, this is what we have, somebody's sloppy and slapdash attempt at putting together all these oral tradition stories, and that's the Iliad that we have it today. Now, the weird thing for me, I'm not going to take sides on this, because here's what happens to me. When when I listen to the, to the Unitarians' argument, I... I find it compelling and I believe it. And I go, yes, one master genius editor compiled the Iliad. The marks of an artist are all over this thing. And then I turn around and I, I listen to the separatists and they go, yeah, you're right. That bit makes no sense at all. Why are they talking about that now, 10 years into the war? And, and I turn around and I believe the separatists' argument. So uh, with this thing, the jury is out. It will likely be out forever. So take your, you know, pay your money and take your chances, folks. Uh, uh, decide what you think after you read the Iliad. The critical thing is, what happened to the Iliad sometime after either one genius or a whole bunch of editors working to deadline managed to get the thing copied down into a text form sometime on or around 700 BCE? Well, the short story is that the Greeks fell in love with it. They, Greece, this was the foundational document of the classical Greek world. They, uh, the Iliad in original Greek is, is told in poetic form. It's, it's, a, it's a poetic beat or meter, which we don't understand in English. It's called dactylectic hexameter. And, 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 and people who read Greek assure me that it sounds brilliant in Greek. But whatever the case is, the, the Greeks fell in love with this particular story. And, and the first reason the Greeks of the classical period like the story is because, well, it's a kick-ass good story. The same reason I, I assume that you're hanging in 11 podcasts into the story. But the second reason why the Greeks love this story is it, be, it became the primer for, for Greek young men for about five to six hundred years to learn their language and their letters. This was the book that you learned how to read or write in if you're a young man inside of the, the classical Greek world, and I'd like to say in the young women too, but in the classical Greek world, they had a lot of carry and spillover from the Bronze Age. They, they didn't really think it was worth spending an awful lot of time training girls to be literate. And, and then, of course, there's the third reason why the Iliad became important to classical Greece, and, and that was this was, well, this was as close as the ancient Greek world had to a, a holy text. This culture was polytheistic. They believed in Zeus and the Olympian gods, but Zeus and the Olympian gods didn't really have any sort of code or text or, or written rules for behavior in a sacred book. Like there was no equivalent of, say, a Christian Bible or the Quran or something like that. So if you were looking for a text that provided exemplars on how to behave and how to be a good citizen or, or what you would do if you were being a bad or a misbehaving citizen, well, you used the Iliad as your guidebook for this. You weren't expected as a Greek to, to believe all the stories in the Iliad, and you certainly didn't have to believe every account of the gods in the Iliad. It wasn't, it wasn't sacred text in that sense, but it was a critical part of Greek culture and, and the Greek way of seeing the world. So the Greeks had their book, 
they were wonderful with it. It was great up until about the year minus 100 BCE. And in that year, Rome rose and became an international superpower. And in short order, Rome conquered Greece, then conquered North Africa, then conquered the Southern Mediterranean, and then conquered most of the known planet all the way north to Scotland. And, and when the Romans conquered Greece, uh, what they did is they grabbed the Greek copy of the Iliad. They brought it back to Rome. They, they recognized that this looked like a really, really good story. So they translated it into a sensible language, Latin, which uh, the Romans could understand and which uh, Rome more nicely off the Roman tongue. They, they changed the names they had a hard time pronouncing. So, so Zeus became Jupiter, Odysseus became Ulysses, uh, Aphrodite became Venus. And, and, and then the Romans, well, the Romans who were great librarians and catalogers made multiple, multiple, multiple copies of Homer's Iliad and, and made sure that those copies were disseminated safely and stored in good places throughout the Roman Empire. And, and the two big places where Rome liked to store their important documents was in a, a library in Alexandria in Egypt and in a library in Constantinople. And the third place, of course, was in a wonderful library in downtown Rome itself. So copies of the document stayed there. And it's a good idea that the Romans spread their copies of the Homer's Iliad out because... Well, in 410 AD, the Roman world and all of Europe, in fact, uh, collapsed into the Dark Ages and, and Northern European barbarian hordes came storming down. They, they sacked Rome. They burnt the Roman library to the ground. And, and for the next centuries, all recollection of Homer's Iliad and all copies of Homer's Iliad vanished from the world view, stored safely only in libraries in Alexandria, which eventually fell apart, and in Constantinople, which hung in. And ladies and gentlemen, then sometime in the early Renaissance, when Europe uh, tiptoed tentatively back into the Middle East for purposes of exploration and conquest, well, the Europeans discovered the libraries at Constantinople, and and, and they discovered Homer's Iliad, and, and that's why we have it in the West today. So the Iliad got translated in short order into every major European language, and, and then it's percolated and spread throughout the world. It became so, so popular that men like Shakespeare grew up reading and memorizing the Iliad. Most of the great artists of the Renaissance and, and the Reformation based at least 50% of their paintings on Homeric themes and 50% of their paintings on biblical themes. And, and, and this became one of the foundational texts and cultural documents of the entire modern world. And that brings us up to the present and it brings us up to one final little comment before I say goodbye to you. And that's that I have to confess that I had a whole heck of a lot of fun preparing the texts for the first 10 episodes of the podcast. Uh, writing the episodes of Trojan War, the podcast was, was great fun and I had uninhibited, unfettered joy as I grabbed ancient texts and remains of texts and scraps of documents and things like that and all of the pre-Iliad stories I told you. So, so that's the stories about the beauty contest, the stories about the apple of discord, the stories about Achilles being dipped in the river, the stories of the sacrifice of Iphigenia and as I've told you in many of these stories, I've had great liberty and latitude because there's multiple accounts of these stories and none of the original artistic texts actually exist of them. We just have hand-me-down bits and commentary. But now, suddenly at the start of episode number 11, well, this episode Achilles Dishonored, well, now I have the task of telling you stories from the Iliad itself. And it's a little bit frightening. It's more than a little bit daunting. Uh, Artists and scholars and, and, and great men, uh, Tolstoy, Goethe, Shakespeare, have, uh, have talked about the Iliad as, as one of these seminal works inside of Western literature. And now, Jeff Wright, storyteller, your, your podcaster is about to turn around and, and, and try to turn this into an entertaining and informative podcast without doing too many horrible blasphemies or disservices to this wonderful awesome Homeric text that I have in front of me. And, and, and it means I'm, I'm anxious, I'm nervous. Every time I read the Iliad, I, 
I discover new things. I discover new ways of looking at it. Every time I read people who talk about the Iliad, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the number of things in the Iliad that I, I still don't understand or the things in the Iliad that still blow me away. And, and so consequently sitting down and actually telling you stories from the Iliad, well, I fear that Homeric scholars will be breathing down my neck and saying, you got it wrong already, Jeff. Your, your thing on honor isn't right. That is not how Kleos or Time operate. And, and, and then, of course, my, my hope is that the rest of you who have no idea what Kleos or Time are just saying, Jeff, just tell us a freaking good story. And if we're interested in the Iliad, we can go read it ourselves and take the pressure off yourself. So that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to listen to those voices, those voices hearing the story for the first freaking time and going, just tell us a story. We can go back and, and read the literary and the literature accounts of it later. So I, I'm going to leave you now. And if you're interested in the story, my, my final suggestion to you is find a copy of, of the story that interests you. I've read a lot of different translations of the Iliad over the last year. Years. And the one that I'm personally most excited about now, the one that turns my crank, is was actually translated just in 2011 by 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 a guy named Mitchell. So if you find that one, I think you'll have an awful lot of fun. And and whatever you do, if you love the story, if you love these episodes of the podcast, do yourself a favor and sit down and go back to the masterpiece Iliad someday because well, it will blow you away. And that's a great place to leave today's episode. I hope you had an awful lot of fun. Uh, you'll want to be heading over to trojanwarpodcast.com to check out episode number 12. It'll be up any day soon. And in that episode, ladies and gentlemen, we will see how Zeus responds to Thetis and Achilles' rather remarkable and audacious request. Have yourselves a great day.